Hey guys, Dan Wanshura here, host of Points North. So a while back, my wife and I were at an estate sale. It's sort of this random thing that we've gotten into after buying our first house a couple years ago. We're in the basement browsing through hand tools, random pieces of furniture, old candles. By the way, you can get really good deals on candles. And then I come across a rack of deer antlers, 10 points, firmly attached to this small cut section of the skull. Now, I've never been deer hunting before, but I was really into these antlers, so we bought them. Now, little did I know at the time, antlers are incredible. For one, they're the fastest growing animal tissue on the planet, but they also could be helpful to us as a possible new treatment for osteoporosis. Well, today's episode is all about antlers, and it's from a podcast I'm pretty sure you're really going to like, Outside In. It comes from New Hampshire Public Radio, and it's about the natural world and how we use it. All right, let's jump in. Is this it? No. I think that's it. Okay. Looking for deer, looking for deer, looking for deer. Hello. I'm Jessica Hunt. I'm Taylor Quimby. And on a single-digit day in January, we drove to a very unusual kind of farm. Whoa! God, they're all packed together like penguins. It was a deer farm. Look, they're looking at us. They're looking at us. All right, keep your eyes on the road here. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. I can't. There are over 4,000 deer farms in the United States. Most of them raise white-tailed deer. But here at Bonnie Bray Farm in Plymouth, New Hampshire, it's their European cousins, the slightly larger red deer. It's incredible. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm Jessica Hunt. About three quarters of the farm's profits come from selling venison. But the other 25% comes from what is arguably one of the most incredible sets of bones on earth. Antlers. Ooh, that's amazing. After a summer's worth of growth, they're this big. Antler tissue is the fastest growing animal tissue on the planet. It grows faster than a human embryo, faster than a cluster of cancer cells. It's absurd. It is. In one season, a mature deer can grow 40 pounds of antler and not long afterwards toss them on the forest floor like a beer can thrown out of a Ford F-150. I don't even know what a Ford F-150 is. It's a truck. (laughs) They're the only mammal they grow an appendage, and it falls off every year, and they grow another one. It's like your arm falling off every year and growing a new arm. They grow so fast, you can practically watch it happen. It will grow a nice hot day. You can actually go out in the morning and go out in the evening, and you'll see that it has grown. It'll grow an inch or more in a day. Okay, so maybe not quite that much for deer, but for moose and elk, yeah. Scientists say up to an inch per day. An inch a day. One inch. Per day. A day. (laughs) (laughs) Holy sh**. Holy sh**. Holy sh**. Holy scat. Today on Outside In, we are taking a look at the incredible edible ungulate antler, a bone so wild we've invented a new segment of Outside In just to highlight it. We learn about how antlers grow, find out whether Santa's reindeer are cows or stags, meet a collector who scours the woods for shed antlers, and 
Find out why scientists think antlers could unlock new treatments for diseases like osteoporosis. And Jessica, I'm counting on you to do the work here because uh, I'm just along for the ride. It's always the way. (laughs) So I, I would just love to go out there and look at them and talk to you. Okay, we can do that, uh, and I have antlers here. Now, most of the deer at this time don't have antlers on them, because except the spikers, the, the yearlings still have theirs. This is Henry Hearn, who runs Bonnie Bray Farm, now in its 28th year. The place is absolutely littered with antlers. They hang off the walls of his barn, they line the inside of a big walk-in cooler, and there are two tall piles of them in the greenhouse near where we parked. How around. much do these weigh? Uh, I, it may have dried out some now, but this is about 12 pounds on a side. So it's about 24 pounds. Inside the farm's tiny store, there's a shelf of locally made jams and jellies. And in the back, racks and racks of old computer parts. Wow. Henry also works as a computer consultant, a job he's been doing since computers were basically giant calculators. So you are Steve Jobs. Or uh, I knew Steve Jobs. You know uh, Steve Jobs? I knew Steve Jobs, yeah. I knew Bill Gates, too. I've shaken hands with him and talked to him and everything else because I was... Really uh, computer groups. Yep, Bill Gates is a weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Bonnie Bray Farm may host the only retail establishment where you can buy a shoulder of venison, a jug of maple syrup, and a lightning-to-USB cable all at the same time. I'm an Apple computer dealer, and deer like apples, so it only fit, right? (laughs) Okay, Taylor, are you ready for some antler facts? Hit me. Deer and moose are all part of the family Cervidae. Uh There are more than 50 separate species on Earth. All but one have evolved to sport antlers. Ooh, sucks to be those ones. Sucks to be that one. I'm just like, wait, why? <laughs> because they're left out. They're just, they must be sad. Maybe they are evolved not to sport antlers. Maybe. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Typically, it's the males that grow antlers. Caribou, which are another name for reindeer, by the way, are the only exception. Mm-hmm. The biggest antlers in history belong to an extinct deer called Megaloceros giganteus. Good name. Yes. Better known as the Irish deer. Their antlers could weigh as much as 80 pounds each, and together were as wide as two twin mattresses laid end to end. The other way to think about this is as wide as a basketball hoop is tall. That's crazy. How did, how would you, how would you get anywhere? I can't imagine. That sounds awful. When a new pair of antlers start growing, they look like stuffed animals because they're covered in a fuzzy coating of skin called velvet. Mm. Those velvet antlers are where the magic happens. They're so full of blood vessels that when they're growing, they're warm to the touch. Like an actual limb. Yeah. As opposed to a horn, I guess. Exactly. Right. They're also packed with nerves. So antlers at this stage are incredibly sensitive. Except for the layer of fuzz, they're basically exposed cartilage. Oof, that sounds like scary. I I bet they're very careful not to bump them against things. Yes, absolutely. In the fall... The antlers start to harden into bone. Afterward, wild deer rub them against trees to scrape the skin off. I looked up a video of this, and it looks like they're itching it off. Like, it looks super itchy at this stage. Yeah. Like a scab. At Bonnie Bray Farm, the deer never get to that stage. That's because antlers are most valuable to humans before they've hardened. All the hair, what people result 
called velvet gets actually scraped off and thrown away. That's not the product we're after. What we're after is the inside where all the nutrients, minerals, uh, stem cells up here in the tips, that type of stuff. And I've got a brochure for you. I can give you a brochure that tells you what's in there. But that's Since the... you might be wondering, I'll tell you. Farming velvet antlers means cutting them off of living animals. When we went out with Henry Ahern to see his deer, all the stags had already had theirs cut off. All that was left was a pair of bony stumps on their foreheads. This makes farms like these a little controversial. After all, as we said, velvet antler is essentially a living appendage packed with nerves and blood. So, I mean, when we cut it off, it does bleed. So, I mean, we have tourniquets on it. We have local anesthetic that bends it like your tooth, pulling a tooth. But um, it does bleed. The American Veterinary Medical Association says that anesthetics are effective for numbing the pain, but obviously cutting off antlers causes the animals some stress. How much is the question? The thing is, is the deer are used to losing their antlers. When they fall off in the spring, they bleed. Okay, if you look on the bottom of this button, there's blood there where it fell off. Henry showed Taylor and I a couple of antlers in his office. The first one is from a hard antler, the kind we're used to seeing on prize bucks after they've scraped away the velvet. If you look closely, there are smooth channels carved along the length of each beam. And these lines that you see on it are actually the blood lines where the blood flows were. The other was a velvet antler cut from one of his deer just before it started to mineralize. It's frozen now so you can't bend it, but when we go to take it off, we can actually wow. bend it. So, so what? No, wait, What you can... What? You can actually, I mean, it's, it's still movable. Henry Ahern also showed us a small, maybe half-inch cross-section of velvet antler in a small plastic case. It looked like something you'd see in a gem or a fossil shop. Uh, so oh, this is my gosh. Dried it looks like a geo. Velvet antler. Okay. So that's what gets ground up and is put into a capsule. As you'll read on virtually every website that sells it, velvet antler has been used in traditional Chinese medicine for thousands of years. In Asia, they're sold whole, in dried slices, or as a ground powder used for making soups. In the U.S., it's mostly popular as a supplement. They're good for both humans and pets. The benefit for dogs is largely uncontroversial. Even animals in the wild will snack on antlers, given the chance. They're generally packed with the sort of stuff nutritionists love. Proteins, peptides, antioxidants, and omega-3 fatty acids. And there are studies that show velvet antler can help dogs with their immune systems, with arthritis, and a host of other things. For humans, the story is a little more complicated because velvet antler contains a compound called IGF-1, or insulin-like growth factor. So much so that the World Anti-Doping Agency has gone back and forth on whether velvet antler should be considered a banned substance in professional sports. But scientists really do see promising evidence that velvet antler can be of benefit to humans. We'll have more of that in the second half of the episode. Do you take them? Uh, I take them, yep. I have for a long time, so it's uh, good, makes me feel good, keeps me young. I read about an MMA fighter who was banned uh, for a year 
from the sport for testing positive for doping after taking Velvet Antler. No kidding. Yeah. You'd think they wouldn't care. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, I mean, come on. Exactly. That shows you what I know. So if antlers are these wonder bones that grow like weeds and are just packed with nutrients, I mean, what are they actually doing for the deer? Like, why expend the energy required to grow them every year if, you know, you just lose them? Well, you might think they'd be used for fighting. Yeah. And you'd be wrong. (laughs) Well, not the first time. Sometimes male deer will get into a pushing match during the high testosterone period when they breed. They'll lock antlers and occasionally get injured. But when it comes to predators, deer are a flight-before-fight species. So mostly antlers are just for show. Right. So this is a classic example of sexual selection. The big, healthy antlers are a sign of a big, healthy animal. And so the bucks or stags or whatever with the biggest rack are going to be the ones who do the mating. Right. But antlers also might play a role in hearing. Moose, you know, they grow those huge palm or paddle-shaped antlers. And studies have indicated they might act like satellite dishes, increasing the sensitivity of their hearing. Oh, my God. That's so cool. Yeah. But whatever shape they come in, antlers are cumbersome. Mm -hmm. So in the winter, males suddenly shed them, leaving a bloody hole or pedicle on their heads. The pedicle scabs over, and then the whole process starts again next year with an even bigger set of antlers. I said that wild animals love a good shed antler, and in fact, they're a valuable source of calcium and protein in forest ecosystems. Raccoons, porcupines, squirrels, even deer will munch on their own shed antlers. That is, if a human doesn't come grab them first. Yeah, in the perfect world, no, we wouldn't touch a thing, you know. But we're part of that system, you know. We're all part of the system. I'm an animal, too. Coming up, the shed hunter. Stick around. You know, when I shed hunt, I just go to Lowe's. Get it? No. Shed, 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 shed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Oh, man. Hey. How are you? My God, everything you said came true. The roads were so icy. Yeah. And all the logging trucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just see that one go up. I wondered if that was in front of you there. So, yeah. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Jessica Hunt. I'm Taylor Crimby. Will Stats is a former wildlife biologist who's been hunting shed moose antlers for about 40 years. Yeah, see, these are what we call white antlers, and a lot of them are what we call spongy. You know, they're, they're, see, they're, you've, they've got gifts. Will's enthusiasm for moose antlers is off the charts. He's got a tree out back where he piles up old ones. He calls them junkers. They're jammed under tables, piled in corners. Will tells me each one is like a snowflake. So these are all unique. You know, there's a hole through this one. This one's got a unique bend to it. This one here has a point broken off where it fought with another moose. See the point sticking in right there? Oh, yeah. And it's got- Will has found so many sheds, he's devised his own lingo for describing them. <laughs> this is what I call... A taco antler here. Oh. It's a big antler, but it's got a fold like a taco. Yeah. Now, these are standalones, these Is antlers. The antlers in the corner. Yeah, I call them standalones because they stand up on their own. Uh, this looks like a Mickey Mouse ear or something like that. His house sounds like the Disney World of uh, moose antlers. It is. Antler World. Is there a kettle boiling? Or yeah, that's uh, some deer you... bone soup that I'm Oh, cooking. my God. Yeah, I got to turn it down a little bit. Do you want it off? Is it... 
But because of his career as a wildlife biologist, the antlers aren't just interesting to look at. Every one is a window into the life of the animal that produced it. This moose was sick. This one was old. So this moose was in poor condition. He didn't grow very good antlers in the latter part of his life, but of course maybe he had this kind of antlers. This is neat. Notice very often, not super often, but pretty often, when a moose sheds its antler, it often breaks out a piece of skull. That's a piece of skull. Unlike the deer farmer from the first half of the episode, Will doesn't just cut off his collection from captive animals. He personally found each one and carried it out of the woods himself. It's a, it's a giant treasure hunt. It's a giant treasure hunt every year. Some shed hunters use snowmobiles or even drones to search for antlers. Will hunts on foot. He'll cover as much as 13 to 15 miles per day and figures he logs close to 300 miles searching every year. Will spends so much time in the woods, he's actually heard a bull moose lose an antler in real time. I go over there, and sure enough, his antler's laying there. He knocked it off on a yellow birch tree. And I mean, if you could have heard the noise he made when he hit that thing. Now, I don't think he did it on purpose. I think he was going down hellity ding-dong through the woods towards that cow and bull, and he just whacked into this tree. It was a tremendous whoop Okay, Jessica, so I I just Googled the deer population in the United States. There are over 25 million deer. I know there's way less moose, like the population is dwindling. But but that means we're talking about like millions upon millions of shed antlers being dropped onto the forest floor every year. And I've never freaking found one. Oh, me either, ever. And now that I'm doing this podcast, it's driving me mad to think there are all those antlers out there and you can't find even one. Yeah. So, So how does Will do it? You have to know what to look for. So you got to look for bull sign. So you got to know that it's a bull there, not a cow, not a cow and a calf. Because they're going to leave lots of sign. They're going to leave poop all over the place, and they're going to have feeding sign. You're going to look for trees that they've rubbed with their antlers. They do lots of rubbing to get rid of those antlers. So you're looking for rub trees. That is like a beacon to you. You see a rub tree. I can spot a rub tree 100 yards away, and so can any shed hunter. And you're going there. Now, that's not necessarily that the antler's going to be laying at the base of it. I found them like that. But those antlers are going to be there. It tells you there's a bull there. You know, you might have to hike five miles behind a locked logging gate and then start searching and then carry 30, 40, 50 pounds of antlers out on your back. <laughs> you still got to go out that five miles. That's a, That hurts. But it's worth it. Will loves antlers, but it's not just a passion. It's also a side gig. So he sells them, you mean? Yes. Some of the lower quality ones he sells as dog chews. Well, I guess a dog doesn't care. But veterinarians, mm, they're mixed. They are very hard, and they can break teeth if the dogs really go at it. Mm. He also sells them to crafters and people who want to make furniture out of them. Or art, like lots of people hang them up. Right, exactly. Yeah, whenever I'm up in the White Mountains, I, I notice that all the restaurants and hotels, they're like completely decked out with that alpine decor. So we're talking like A-frames. And then antlers everywhere. Antler lamps, antler chandeliers, you know, like antler butter knives. I have I have an antler on my mantelpiece. I've had it for over 25 years, and I've moved with it four times. Why? Because <laughs> it's evidence of a moose. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. 
So the price, Will says, is determined by the color. A brown antler means it was dropped this year, and if it's in good shape and it hasn't been chewed by other animals, it fetches top dollar. In a good year, he can make a few grand, enough to fund his yearly canoe trip. Yeah, my my life is dictated by seasons, I guess you would say. You, you know, s- spring is antler hunting, and then s- summer is, you know, canoe trips and canoeing, and coming to fall, it's heavy-duty hunting for deer. And then all winter, we uh, track bobcats, and then spring, it's shiggering, and then back to shed hunting. So there's a circular pattern of living that's that just is what I do, you know. It's just how it goes. Okay, so after a break, we're going to talk more about the science behind how deer produce so much bone in such a short period of time and why scientists think that could be the key to treating human bone diseases. But first, Taylor, are you ready? A quick deer fact speed round. Yeah. A female white-tailed deer is called... A doe, a deer, a female deer. A doe. A doe. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know the song. You confused me, all those answers. <laughs> Pick one. Uh, <laughs> okay. A female caribou or moose? Uh, is a cow. Wow. And a female red deer? Okay, we're, we're really playing this because I was there with you when we learned this. I know what it is. You know what it is. It is called a hind. Very good. And the breeding season for white-tailed deer, caribou, and moose? Is the rut. And for red deer, what is it called? I really like this one. It's called the roar. That's a good one. I wish I could name one of these. If I discover an animal, do I get to name its breeding season? The fluff. (laughs) (laughs) The creep. (laughs) TMI. And we've got one last quiz question to see if you were paying attention earlier. I obviously had not been. Are Santa's reindeer boys or girls? They usually have antlers, right? So you think they're all males? Trick question. They're all female. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's got it right. Caribou are the only deer species where both the male and the female grow antlers. The males all lose their antlers in November, early December. So Santa's reindeer all have to be females because they're the only ones that have antlers left. That's been going around on, like, Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, dear listener, Outside In is only possible because of the support of people like you. So if you've learned anything wild so far this episode that you're probably going to talk to someone about, tell them where you heard it and donate to the show at outsideinradio.org. There's a link in the show notes. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Jessica Hunt. Taylor, have you ever heard of the ship of Theseus? I have. So this is a, um, a philosophical paradox uh, about an ancient Greek hero, or his ship, rather. The idea is that, you know, as his ship ages, the crew is, like, replacing planks and pieces and what have you uh, with, with new pieces as it goes on. And then eventually, every piece of the ship individually has been replaced. So even though it looks like the same ship, and it is technically the same ship— Literally every nut and bolt and plank is different than it was in the beginning. And so uh, it it gets used as this philosophical idea to say, like, you know, can you change and yet still be the same person, I think is the idea. Okay. So now I want you to imagine the ship of Theseus is actually your body. Over time, you're replacing all of your skin cells as they slough off. 
Same with all of the tissues that make up your organs. Even your bones are quietly and constantly being replaced. Old bone tissue is being reabsorbed to supply calcium to the rest of the body, and new, stronger bone tissue is being laid down, just like the planks on the ship of Theseus. Whether or not that makes you a different person is an interesting question, but let's forget about the paradox. We're talking about antlers here. Right. This is an antler show. Right. So I want to talk about what happens when the process gets unbalanced. Because unlike the mythical ship of Theseus, we do age. At some point, the crew can't keep up, and our bodies start absorbing more bone than they replace. When bones become especially weak, it's called osteoporosis, which is Latin for porous bone. For someone with osteoporosis, their bones break easily, and they grow shorter and more stooped over as their spines begin to compact. Hmm. I've actually seen the pictures of bone under magnification, and, you know, healthy bone, it kind of looks like this tight honeycomb or spider web. But with osteoporosis patients, you know, it starts to resemble this very holy Swiss cheese, like the spider web is thinning. There are fewer strands. Um, it's it's pretty wild to look at. Right. And osteoporosis affects millions of Americans, especially women over the age of 50. And once it gets bad, there's no reversing the process. But deer get osteoporosis every year. Antlers grow so fast that their bodies rob their shoulder blades and ribs for materials, calcium and protein. And while the new rat gets stronger, these other bones get weak and fragile. But then, unlike humans, they can undo the damage. Their antlers fall off, and then their shoulders and ribs fill in with stronger bone mass, and the cycle begins again. So what you're telling me is the deer are basically Wolverine from the X-Men. <laughs> they have a mutant healing factor, unlike any other creature on Earth. Exactly. Exactly. You don't actually know anything about Wolverine, <laughs> do you? <laughs> I know what a Wolverine is. I don't know who Wolverine is. Despite all of the incredible stuff we told you about antlers in the first half of the episode, this is the true superpower of the Servid family. Their ability to grow and regrow bone is unparalleled. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to be exploring how scientists think we might be able to deploy this superpower for humankind. And we're starting with Dr. Brendan Lee. And this is where good fortune actually and, and, and chance is very important. Dr. Brendan Lee is chair of the Department of Molecular and Human Genetics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And his research into antlers came almost by chance. He was meeting with a major supporter of the bone disease program at Baylor, who just happened to live on a ranch. And in fact, we were having a conversation, you know, about his ranch and really talked about, you know, how they manage the wildlife there and so forth, including deers. And, you know, it's interesting, that conversation led me to think more about deers and antlers. It was researchers at Baylor who played a leading role in sequencing the genome of the white-tailed deer, which was made available to the public in 2017. Dr. Lee is trying to take apart the antler process piece by piece and stage by stage to see how exactly the bone growth superpower actually works. We actually did do that. We sectioned the tip, the middle, the, the, the core. We actually also covered, sectioned the, the, the covering called the velvet. Our bones go through stages too. When we're first born, we develop cartilage that acts almost like a sketch of where and how bone will be shaped. And then in the center, 
It starts to transform into a spongy matrix before finally hardening or mineralizing into bone. Something similar happens when a broken bone repairs itself, too. If you think of bone formation as almost like a conveyor belt, um, you can accelerate different parts of the conveyor belt. But if you don't do it in a coordinated fashion, you just end up with a big traffic jam, so to speak. Dr. Lee hopes that if we identify the right genes and pathways in deer, maybe we can accelerate bone repair and strengthening in humans. Understanding the genetics of antlers might help with more than osteoporosis. It could speed things up when somebody breaks an arm or leg, too. But it's not just bone growth that's interesting. Are you looking only at um, bone growth, or are you also looking at the genes that stop growth? Uh, That's another excellent question. So in the whole area of regenerative medicine, you have to understand both sides of it. Because if you have uncontrolled growth, what would you end up with? You end up with cancer. So this just blew my mind. I I never thought about this idea of how we're always trying to speed things up, speed them up, speed them up. Because that sounds like a really good thing. But, you know, what is really fast growth when it comes to cells? It's uncontrolled. It's cancer. Yeah. So we want to harness that superpower, but it's it could be. It could be a super non-power. It could be a super. What's the opposite of a power? Kryptonite. Yes. Kryptonite. Anyway. Anyway, that's why people like Dr. Lee are looking at genes that grow bone fast, but also genes that put on the brakes. Because in order to protect their antlers from growing out of control, deer have basically developed cancer suppression genes. Something that grows so fast is because it's producing energy probably 100 or 1,000 or more times than a normal cell. This is Tomas Landete Castillejos, a deer scientist at the University of Castilla-La Mancha. So imagine somebody or elderly people or or sportsmen having mitochondria that work like this. Dr. Landete Castillejos is specifically looking at velvet antler for its anti-cancer properties, which he says don't have the same toxic effect in normal cells that chemotherapy has. And we actually uh, found that uh, the tip is active against a kind of uh, cancer that is called uh, glioblastoma brain cancer. That is actually people who have it uh, have a very short um, expectancy of life. This research is in its early, early phase. Nothing has been tested on humans or even lab animals. The next step is to try treating mice with velvet antler. Turning an animal's superpower into a human one can take decades, massive amounts of funding, and there's still no guarantee. I think that the challenge next is picking the right targets. Because when we think about developing drugs or therapies, you have to identify what we call lead compounds or lead targets. And so that's really the next phase. Henry Ahern of Bonnie Bray Farm did his velvet antler show and tell. He played us a video of his male deer during the breeding season. 
But he also took us out front where he keeps a few dozen females. <clears throat> Heinz. Good job, Taylor. <laughs> oh, thank you. Heinz. Thank you very much. So no antlers here, but these deer are especially habituated to the presence of people. Hey! Hey! I'm not foolish enough to go in there with a bag of grain. Go. Oh, okay. Oh my god. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Oh boy. Oh boy. Okay, here we go. The audio doesn't really do it justice, but this is the sound of several deer slurping grain out of our bare hands. Come on, girls. Did you get a kiss? All right, put your cheek down like this. Put your cheek down. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you guys ever talk? Where's the rest of that crew? It's pretty special for a couple of non-hunters to be able to be this close to what we generally think of as an elusive animal. But just a couple of days later, I saw a New York Times article with a picture of a scientist standing right next to a deer, like we were, but he was wearing a mask. A new study shows that some 60% of deer in Iowa have tested positive for COVID-19. Another outlines what may be the first case of COVID-19 passed from a deer to a human. We don't know how they're getting it. We don't know if it's making them sick. But we do know that deer could wind up being a reservoir for new mutations, spreading disease at the same time that we're hoping they can help us to treat it. I was literally kissing the deer. (laughs) Oh, that seems like a bad idea in retrospect. What was I thinking? But they were they were very cute and they had gigantic eyes and they were quiet and polite. So should we think of deer as beautiful? Mysterious? Creepy? Bambi? <laughs> Sweet? <laughs> Dangerous? Amazing? Yeah. Either way. It's enough to make you say, holy sh holy sh holy sh holy scat. That episode of Outside In was hosted by Jessica Hunt and Taylor Quimby. Editing by Taylor Quimby and the show's executive producer, Rebecca Lavoy. Additional editing by Felix Poon and Nate Hedgie. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder, Arthur Benson, Claude Signet, Marlon Ledeen, and Max Dragu. Points North is hosted by me, Dan Wanshura. Morgan Springer is our editor. You can subscribe to Points North wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review the show. And check out our special season on natural selection. The show is a production of Interlochen Public Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>